hello and welcome to another episode of Walk-Ins Welcome. I'm Michael Russell and this is... Gary Okazaki. <laughs> I'm having a little bit of white wine as we... Yeah, uh, watch out everyone. This is... Uh, we're live today. Um, Gary came in a little hot and asked for a little wine. I had some white burgundy in the fridge, so uh, he put some ice on it and we're, we're going now. Oh God, he he didn't have to open an expensive bottle because man, <laughs> I just I don't really care. I just yeah, the cheaper the better. Yeah, it was like it was only like fifteen bucks. Uh, that's that's ten bucks more than you needed to spend on that bottle. I mean, that, that I needed to actually have that quality. Of wine. Thank you though. <laughs> um, so this is Walk-ins Welcome. It's a sort of national, sometimes international restaurant podcast. Um, although the two of us are both based in Portland, um, so today. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff. Um, we've got the Michelin Guide to New York City coming out soon. Uh, we had the 50 Best for Latin America came out last week. And we're going to break down a couple of our favorite or most interesting new restaurants that are on our radar. Um, and favorite gonna... bites, too. And favorite bites, too. Oh, I haven't really thought about that one yet. All right, I'll get one before we get to it. Okay. And uh, the other thing is, uh, to start things off, I thought it'd be fun... You know, as someone who's followed you on Instagram for a long time and um, known you personally for a while, I've always been very impressed with the way you're able to knock out two or even three intense multi-course meals in a single night. Um, can you, you know, even as a professional eater myself, I'm impressed by that. So can you break down for me how just how you do that how how do you manage your time how do you manage the calories do you have you know strategies for dieting in between how do you do it well this year's been it's been so intense it's one thing if you eat this way for two or three nights a month versus eating this way for 20 nights a month and I weighed myself today and I haven't gained a single pound. So that's the good news. But I, I used to have certain rules. Number one, I didn't, when I traveled, I didn't used to drink. Well, that one went out the roof. I went out, you know, I started drinking when I traveled starting this year. So I gave up that rule. Another rule was don't eat bread. When you go to a restaurant, they always have bread that they bring to the table. Don't eat it. It's empty calories. Again, I've relaxed that role too. Uh, so uh, it, 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 it can be very challenging, but part of it is mindset. Yeah, but I mean, sometimes the bread is an integral part of the meal. I know, and the right. chefs take as much pride in that as I any know. other course. That's why I've tried to relax that rule. Because like, I went to Komi a couple years ago, and I was actually blown away. I wasn't going to eat the bread. But I just had to buy the bread, and I just couldn't stop eating it. It just was incredible. Do you remember what kind of bread it was? Uh, no, I do not. But I know, I know, I couldn't stop eating it, and I had to get a second and third helping. <laughs> and the same, the same is true for castanas bread. Uh, it, it's something that you just you just can't get enough of. That's, I, that's it, it's very intense. That's castanya bread. And my 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 friend just went. She came to dinner with me at castanya, and she just couldn't stop eating. She had like four, you know, four rolls. That's intense. I know. Uh, I will tell you the first time I ever ate at Castagna, I ate two rolls and it, it knocked me out. I right? Was, I was done. Yeah. Those are great. <laughs> uh, so I, part of it is just mindset. Um, I find tasting menus are a little bit easier for some reason to handle because they're, they're smaller dishes, smaller bites. Uh, 
when I'm in San Francisco, I I used to rotate five tasting menus. It'd be Bennu, Saison, Quinn's, Atelier Cran, and Qua. I, I haven't gone to Saison or Bennu in a, in a little while, in a few years, but now it's just Quince, Atelier Cran, and Qua. So I just rotate them. So what is the most meals or most courses you've done in a single night? Uh, well, it's hard because you, if you do a la carte plus tasting menus, it could be somewhat deceiving. But uh, I was just checking on my calendar for this year, and I remembered that uh, during the winter of this year, while I was in New York, I did have four meals, four dinners in one night. Uh, two of the meals, the, the two, first two dinners, I, I ate with an acquaintance of mine. So I started out at Llama Inn in Brooklyn. meal was fantastic. It was totally a la carte. Then we went to Reynard, and again, a la carte. Um, and then I went to La Vera, which again, it's a small bites, tapas. That was easy. Then I finished the night at Battersby, which was a tasting menu. Do not do four meals with the last one being a tasting menu. It was, it was, it was really, really painful. It was, I think the reservation might have been at 10 p.m., and I'd been eating since 5.30. And I just didn't want to see food at 10 p.m. or 10. Then, you know, it lasted an hour and a half, two hours. And to eat for that length of time was just, it was, it was hard. Oh, it wasn't hard. It was just the amount of food. And, you know, if you, you don't, I'm not going to kill myself. I'm not going to make myself sick. I'm not going to throw up. So if I, if I can't finish something, I'm just not going to finish it. Because mm. so I just... Some, you know, when I do the San Francisco tasting menus, because my body's used to eating at Qua, Quince, and AC, because I've been to each place at least 15 times over the last, you know, seven years. So my body's used to, you know, the food there. So I know that maybe toward the end of that second tasting menu, I may not be able to eat all of my last savory dish. I could always eat desserts. I remember once in Paris at Pierre Garnier, a six rue Balzac, I had 18 desserts in one sitting. Oh, my God. I know. I, I was leaving for Charles de Gaulle early in the morning, the next these, morning. These must have been on the small side. small side, yeah. yeah. They were, Still. Yeah, they were small side. They were like eight P desserts and ordered the Le Grand desserts, which is at that time was like nine separate desserts. Mm-hmm. And then you order the souffle. That's the souffle plus three different other desserts that part of the souffle. So I remember like I couldn't sleep. I was so sugared up. I had a sleeping pill because I, I had to go to Charles de Gaulle like a few hours later. So I took a sleeping pill and that had no impact whatsoever. So I basically stayed up all night on a sugar high. Oof. So I just, I will always remember eating, it was 18 desserts. Plus I had one savory course, which, you know, at Pierre Garnier, it's multiple dishes on each course. So like six six different courses, six different dishes with that. I'm one like, I want to say I'm kind of the opposite of you like i well i do my own sort of feats of eating strength here in portland for round very good and things yeah You're very good i've been with you yeah and i can i'll go out and i've gotten really smart about you know if i'm going out right now i'm doing like a roundup of where to find chinese and korean hand-pulled noodles in portland and i can go out and knock out six or eight of those in a row uh, just because I've gotten smarter about only taking a couple or three bites or, you know, setting stuff aside. But if I start getting into dessert, 
I find I am just tanked. Like if my plan is to go out to two or three restaurants in a night, and if the first one has nice looking desserts and I order those desserts, I'll probably finish them and I'll probably just be zonked for the next couple of places. So I don't know. We're just the opposite, I guess. I've been with you many times when we've eaten. and you're, but Plus, you're a big dude. Yeah. Um, so you can eat you can eat and drink. I mean, you have a huge, a large capacity. Yeah. The, the best eater I've seen is a five foot two inch little, you know, woman, Carrie. Carrie Kissel has a bottomless pit of a stomach. She can just eat and eat and eat. It's the most amazing thing. And she's so tiny. She's so tiny. And she can eat so much food. It's truly amazing to see. But, um, yeah. Well, I know, you know, other restaurant critics I've met professionally. Um, uh, Tom Sitsima from the Washington Post um, has a really amazing um, self-control, I guess you would say. And I came went out with him quite a bit the last time he was here in Portland uh, for the, his thing where he was, like, ranking all, the Amer- all of America's food cities. And he really has a way of just, like, taking, like, maybe two ounces of each dish. Really? I'm just guessing. Yeah. Maybe it's less, maybe it's a little more, but like just about, he just takes a couple of bites and he's like, bang, he's got it. And it's all registered in his head. That's it. He's good to go. Um, he doesn't do that thing that most humans would do naturally, which is just eat, keep taking bites and bites and bites. Right. And, uh, I think other critics, um, Bill Addison from eater, I think he has a, had a, some kind of herbal tincture, you know, non-CBD, but probably these days everyone's taking CBD, so... So you only... He, you, just he, something does, to settle the stomach, essentially. You does, know? does he only take a few bites, too? Bill's a good eater. I, I think... Uh, I, I don't think anybody I've ever met is like Tom in the way that it's, like, very... Uh, measured. Measured, yeah. And it's... Uh, he's a real pro. I mean, obviously, he's been doing criticism for... Right. Uh, decades, from Seattle to San Francisco to Washington, D.C., so he... Uh, he also is an impeccable dresser. So those two things go, I can't claim to really be either of those things. <laughs> I'm working on it. Well, yeah. Well, I used to, yeah. Well, I've given up hope. I just, <laughs> I just, I just, anyone who sees me around town, if, if I have a lime green or orange jacket and sweatpants, that's usually me with a fanny pack. Every time Gary records a podcast here, he leaves behind like an orange beanie or some kind of reflective vest. <laughs> But it's very safe. All right, well, let's get to the meat of the show, so to speak. Um, you know, I guess, uh, you know, probably one of the more exciting things on the menu for you is uh, uh, the Michelin Guide is coming out for New York. When is that coming out, and what are you looking for? It's coming it? out this week. I believe it's November 6th, give or take a day. And New York obviously has the most number of stars in the United States. They were the first U.S. city to get a Michelin Guide. What's happened in the last few years is that three Michelin-starred restaurants have lost their stars. Two, the the two times this happened is Danielle. Are we talking about Michelin three-starred restaurants? Yeah, Michelin three-starred restaurants right. going down to two. Okay. Dan- Danielle, it happened to Danielle, and then it happened to Jean Georges in the last few years. So that's two. Did you say there were three total, or no? Well, no, there was two that went from two three went from three to, to two. two yeah. yeah. And will it happen this year? I I doubt it, even though I'm not so sure. I don't think Le Bernardin or Eleven Madison Park are three Michelin-starred restaurants. 
And I have, it's been a few years since I've been to EMP and I went to Laverne Dan this year as my most recent visit. But I, I really doubt that they'll take away a third Michelin star from either one of those restaurants. Why? You know, it's kind of like Paul Bocuse. They will never take that third Michelin star away from Paul Bocuse. Is Eric, our Eric Repair um, and Daniel Hume Paul Bocuse? No. And they've taken stars away from Jean-Georges and Dan- Danielle Ballou. So it could happen. But I just, I don't know. I mean, I just, I think, I always predict, I should always think I should predict that it happens every year. And I sort of kind of do. But it just never happens. So I think if they haven't done it yet, I don't think they will do it. Uh, I think that Automix is one of my favorite new restaurants in the world this year. We I'd talked be, about them uh, a last, couple of episodes ago. Yeah, yeah. I, I I think they deserve two Michelin stars. I'd be shocked if they didn't get at least one. At the two Michelin star level, what could move up to three? Um, I've been to this year. I've been to Atera, Aska, and Blanca. All three are two Michelin stars. I think Atera is the strongest of the three and deserves that third Michelin star. I think Ronnie Emberg is doing a fantastic job. That's where Portland's Matt Leitner used to be. He's the one who opened um, Atera. And Leitner kind of made his fame at Castagna, the restaurant we were talking about here in Portland. So I I hope Atera gets that third Michelin star. I think Blanca also deserves a third Michelin star. People say that the food is too simple, but if, if sushi restaurants get a third three michelin stars why shouldn't blanca because i think the execution was incredibly high everything was really tasty i just thought it was an elevated experience at blanca even though i expected something more even more rustic um but we'll see i i think atera and blanca have a chance with atera having the strongest chance and um, Automix getting at least one, if not two, Michelin stars. Those are my main predictions for New York City. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not the most ex- excited person about the New York culinary scene. Uh, so we'll. I mean, we'll see. I'm gonna spend more time in New York in 2019. I I took three trips this year, and I'll take three or four next year just to get a better feel for the city. It's, it's. I don't think it's. It's not my favorite place to eat. In, it's not my favorite city to eat in the United States. So we'll see. I just need to get more acclimated to that city's culinary scene. My friend Regan Hoffman uh, tweeted out on October thirtieth that two of the Queens restaurants on today's Bib Gourmand list, that's Michelin mm-hmm. New York, are closed for good, and one lost its big deal chef months ago. Somebody. Get Michelin Guide New York some fact checkers. <laughs> so I mean, what's interesting to me is like the the big initial criticism of Michelin in New York was that they weren't really putting the resources it took in to actually do the guide that said that they were going to do. And you do see them. I'm not nearly as deep into watching them as you are, but I do see them occasionally doing things that seem a little reactionary, whether it's like, okay, we don't have any Thai restaurants on our list. Let's give Pak Pak one Michelin star, which, you know, Pak Pak is a really great restaurant. It's super influential. But I think even Andy Ricker was surprised. You know, I think he tweeted at the time when he, when they weren't on the Bib Gourmand list, he assumed that they had been taken out of the guide a few years ago. And it doesn't have a star anymore, but it, I, it was strange to see it there. And it did seem like it was part of a wave of, okay, we're going to add... 
you know, maybe Uncle Boone's got a star. I can't quite remember. But now maybe they're saying, oh, we're, we're short on Queens restaurants. Let's throw some in the Bib Gourmand. And then they don't even bother to find out that that restaurant isn't even open anymore or, you know, that they've lost a chef where the food would presumably go way down. I mean, I'm definitely not deep enough to really say these things definitively, but it, it does kind of bear fruit for what people like Robert Sitsima, the um, then Village Voice critic, wrote when they arrived, which was, are they really going to put the kind of money and resources required to cover the New York scene the way they say they want to? There's so many restaurants in New York City. It's easy Bonkers. for... Yeah, I mean... That doesn't excuse those errors. And I think last a couple of episodes ago, we talked about that. I, I think Michelin understands French food because they've been reviewing that type of food for decades and decades and decades. When they extend beyond that, that understanding to other cuisines, I think they struggle trying to put their stars to those type of restaurants, whether it's Japanese or Thai or Scandinavian or Nordic or whatever, um, Chinese, it's not easy for them. And to this day, they're struggling. Um, but I think it's the best, it's the best rating system that I've seen. Goat meal is very good. I, in, in France, it's just not as accessible to me or as approachable to me as Michelin is, at least when it comes to French restaurants in, in France. But I do respect Gomillon, but they're only in in France, as far as I know. Um, there's a Gaulle in the United States, but I just don't find the rating system to be that accurate well at least to my to my thinking that accurate i prefer the goat meal system in um, paris because i i love sur measure by terry 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 marks has two michelin stars but i thought this is underrated this is really close to a third michelin three michelin star restaurant and i think they have like an 18.5 or 19 out of 20 which is really there's only like two restaurants in the world that have ever gotten 20 out of 20 both restaurants owned by Mark Barrett. Uh, so getting an 18 and a half or a 19 is just incredible. And uh, yeah, I, th- I, you know, I think Gomeo does a really nice job. I wish they were around the world. Yeah. As ubiquitous as do, Michelin do, is. Do we know why Michelin decided to expand beyond France? Money. Yeah. I would imagine. Um, yeah. Cool. Uh, well, let's let's move on to another big list. Uh, we love to like talking about lists here, but the World Fifty Best released their guide to Latin America. Right. So, uh, interestingly, even though we talked about your great meal at Central last year, they were not number one. They were number two. So Mido was number one, yeah. and Mido on the big World's Top Fifty list is number seven, and Central is number six in the world. So they're very, they've always been very close together. I, I ate at both places a few weeks ago. And to me, that wasn't even close. And I had the large tasting menu at both places. Central was so much better than Mido. Mido was great. But Central receives my very rare 20 out of 20. Where Mido, I haven't really thought about it. I know it's not 20 and I know it's not a 19. It's, like, it's probably like 17, 18. It was really, really, really good, but it wasn't didn't approach Central. But I have a question for you. Oh my God! Okay, regarding the Latin American How top fifty, you? which city? Yes, has 
the most restaurants in the top 50 Latin America. I list. didn't check ahead of time. I yeah. guess Peru. I mean, I guess Lima. That is not correct. One more guess. Buenos Aires. You are correct. Okay, interesting. Ten out, ten out of the 50 are from Buenos Aires. Eight are from Peru, and Peru's second. Yeah. Mexico City has six. So there were some... <laughs> we're really picking apart these lists today, but there was some discussion a few years ago. I don't know if it was the piece that Brett Martin wrote about the 50 best list, or maybe it was one in The New Yorker, but it uh, they pointed out that the tourism board of Peru had invited a bunch of known world's 50 best voters on a junket trip to Lima and that the next year all of a sudden Lima becomes the most celebrated city in that list. And you know, all these Lima restaurants appear on the overall 50 best list, the world's 50 best list. So maybe Buenos Aires did the same thing last year. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was surprised to see that many. I'd be curious to find out if someone wants to tweet at us, um, or email, Walkins welcome pot at gmail.com. You can let us know if that happened or not. Um, uh, the ones that are in the top 50, uh, uh, there are three, if I remember correctly. Obviously, Mido, Central, and Astrid y Gaston are the, th- are the three in the top 50 in the world's best list. Uh, Central t- most certainly deserves to be in there, in my opinion. Mido, I like, yeah, yeah, I was in the top 50, sure. Um, Astrid Gaston, probably not. So this will be interesting. I'm going to Buenos Aires next year, so we'll see how many of the ten I get to uh, visit. But I don't know. We'll see. So I, I don't agree very much with the world's top fifty. I don't think Eleven Master Park is whatever they are top four, like the fourth best restaurant. It's not the it's not the fortieth best restaurant in the world. It's not the one <laughs> hundredth best restaurant in the world. And you know, same with the Bernadette. It's not the twenty sixth best restaurant in the world. It's not in the top. It's not in my top probably 100, 150, I don't think. Yeah. Although they have the best pastry chef in the in the country by far, Tommy J. Raquel, Thomas J. Raquel. He's the best. That goes a long way. Um, so we like to talk a little bit about uh, new restaurants that are sort of on our, caught our radar, you know. Um, I saw that um, Eater LA, I think, reported that David Chang is opening a noodle bar in LA. That's interesting just because, you know, I don't think West Coasters know quite how influential noodle bar is. I feel like we've gotten, you know, dozens of restaurants from Seattle to LA that really either are hardcore ripoffs of Momofuku, of, of noodle bar specifically or are really inspired by them, or come from chefs who worked in the Momofuku group. I mean, Portland alone has a half dozen restaurants that fit one of those bills. Um, you know, I feel like, well, Smallwares in Portland comes from a former Momofuku chef. Johnny Leach, who's opening a restaurant called La Neta in downtown Portland, is a former Momofuku guy. Um, there's a handful of others, and, you know, I feel like the Revel Network, even though I don't think they have direct Momofuku ties, uh, Seattle's Revel and uh, Jewel, and also, don't they have a Korean barbecue place in Capitol Hill? What's that called? Trove. Trove. Those three restaurants feel like they could be a part of, you know, they have that sort of hip Asian fusion vibe. They use a similar font on their menus. It's like, if you haven't eaten at Noodle Bar or really, you know, any of the that caliber of Momofuku restaurant, I don't think you just know how many chefs are taking stuff from them, um, you know, and how influential that's been. So maybe now that they're going to have a, a true LA foothold following just a year after um, 
the opening of Major Domo, which is David Chang's first West Coast restaurant period, I think that'll maybe make it clear just like, you know, these guys are were a really big deal, not just for New York. Right. Yeah. Maybe they'll open one. I don't think they'll ever open one in Portland. But That's a long way away. Maybe Seattle, Fuku, Seattle. Fuku or whatever it's called, the chicken. Nishi? Right? Nishi? Is that? Nishi Fuku. Yeah. I think it's a Fuku. Well, they could open one. In, I could see them opening one in Seattle. Is it Fuku? <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, the, the restaurant I'm looking forward to is one I'll be eating at in a few weeks. It's called The Front Room in Bangkok in the Waldorf Astoria. It's a French. It's it's um, it's a Thai chef, a female Thai chef doing Nordic cuisine. I'm very intrigued by that. I have no idea whether it'll be revelatory or a total mess. Um, but I'm curious to see. It just opened up really recently, within the last, I think, month or two. Uh, speaking of um, Asians kind of, you know, doing their own type of, like, weird type, like, a different type of cuisine, I was in Paris this past week, and I went to five restaurants with Japanese chefs doing their take on French contemporary food and i still have i mean there are so many more japanese chefs doing french contemporary cuisine and i have like at least four to five more to go to and i'll go to them next year hopefully but it it was interesting to see pertinence and kai and alliance and um and restaurant at uh, do their thing i mean it it wasn't necessarily you, you can say, I mean, if you didn't know, you wouldn't say, oh, this is a Japanese chef. This is like, you know, a little fusion between uh, Japan and France. There, you, you, didn't, you didn't seem that way. But it's just intriguing to see their take on French contemporary um, cuisine. So it was, it was an enjoyable experience with Kai being a two Michelin star that I think also deserves three. Mm. So uh, it was... It was uh, uh, it was my, one of the reasons I went to Paris is just to see this this sort of um, trend that's happening in Paris. Uh, that's really interesting because when we were in Paris in July, we went to a French-run restaurant that was cooking Japanese food. So there was a restaurant called Rigmarole. That's uh, right. And they are they the it's a French guy. He looks like Harry Potter. Don't know his name. You might know it, but. He's uh, he cooks robata, you know. He cooks like everything on a robata. So that was uh, kind of the flip side of that. We also went to a natural wine bar in France that seemed to exclusively cater to Japanese expats called Margot, and we had a you know a couple nice glasses of wine. There was like 190 million degrees out, and uh, <laughs> they, nobody has central AC, so we were we should do what you did. We should have put our wine on on the rocks, nice. you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's cool. So the, what were the names of the restaurants you visited in France again? Pertinence, where there's actually a husband and wife team where the wife is Malaysian and the husband is um, Japanese. Kai, which is Kai Kobayashi's restaurant. There's Restaurant Alliance. There was um, Restaurant AT for Chef Tanaka. And those were the four. I think I'm missing one, but I went to like 13 restaurants. So um, excuse me if I'm if I forgot that fifth. Unforgivable. Yeah. Unforgivable. Yeah. Um, 
we like to end the show just by talking about sports a little bit. But before we oh, yeah, do that, okay, before ahead. that, we, we always forget to do oh, this. Oh, our best bites. Yeah. Well, right, what were your best bites? I'll, I'll, go, go I'll go first. I'll go first. Okay, since we're talking about Paris, yeah. I went to um, one of my favorite restaurants in, in the world, La Sanc, and the chef is Christian Lesquier, and he has three Michelin stars. The restaurant has three Michelin stars, and I had a dish that was Roasted and smoked blue lobster from Brittany with Bear Blanc sauce and chestnuts. And it was a, also a chestnut pasta. And it was absolutely fantastic. Here's the thing about three Michelin star restaurants in Paris. There's usually a tasting menu option, except for Lambrecy, which doesn't have one. But, the, so, but they want you to do this tasting menu. If you don't do the tasting menu, you go a la carte. The, the the entrees are like really really expensive. So this dish, which wasn't you know normal sized dish, was like two hundred dollars. And because they just they just want you to try the tasting menu, and the tasting menu is like th- three like th- three high three hundreds, low four hundreds. But yeah, it's like but I, I've had his tasting menu before, and I just didn't feel like a taste another tasting menu. So I went a la carte. I had ordered a couple other cart dishes, including a dessert. And the desserts are 40 euros, which is, I guess, $50 for dessert. It's, again, it's a regular size dessert. They just want you to try these tasting menus. But it, I, I love La Sanc. What can I say? <laughs> but that was my favorite dish that I've had last week. Okay. I had many dishes in Paris that were amazing. I picked that one out. I'll throw out a couple, um, if that's okay. I, I, I was down at... Uh, uh, Bollywood Theater, which is an Indian restaurant here in Portland, and uh, Troy McClarty, who's the chef there, former Chez Panisse guy, was making a uh, masala omelet. So it's kind of like a classic Mumbai omelet. It's just like a really hammered omelet with onions and uh, red bell pepper, um, their green and red sauces, and then served on their pow, which is their rolls. Um you know, just like an omelet that you kind of cut up and made little sandwiches with. This and, wasn't a special, was it? Is it all? Uh, yeah, it's his breakfast, basically. And I oh. was there interviewing him, and he just, you know, he had made a bunch of it. So I had a little pow. It was really good. Oh, can can is it? Can anyone from is he serving it on regular menu? He is thinking about it, and he thinks the public will never won't order it. Huh. Uh, Heath, anyway. Okay. Uh, but the actual probably best thing I had was I went to the uh, Joe Bedia pop up in North Portland. So Joe Bedia is a Pizza chef uh, who Bon Appetit called his restaurant in Philadelphia uh, the best pizza in the world, I think, um, which is a strong statement. Uh, I think that was a couple years ago. But he closed that restaurant and he's thinking about reopening. And when he does, there'll be lines around the block like crazy. So it's it's a pain in the butt to eat there. And it's not even open right now. But he came to Portland because he wanted to cook a meal with Sarah Minnick, who is the chef and owner co-owner of lovely's 50 50 here in portland and she's kind of widely regarded as kind of a a pizza god herself um uh she's well known for basically being a farm to table pizzeria so it's like intensely seasonal right now she's serving pizzas with chard and wild mushrooms and they're all very very delicious um so my favorite bite of the night was probably a dish that I think is actually on the regular menu, which is just her um, wood-fired cauliflower with uh, anchovy, garlic, Calabrian chili, and this just intense sauce. And we 
I actually waited. We talked about lines a couple of episodes ago. I actually waited five and a half hours for my pizza. How did that? I, I saw you IG that. Now, how did that? When did you get there? And what? How, five and a half hours? When did you well, get I there? Well, I mean, of course, I ate in between. But, like, I got there at 425, and there was already probably about 75 people in line in front of me. And that grew as I stood there because people were holding places in line for other people. By the time I got my name in at five oh five ten or whatever, uh-huh. um, they they were trying to tell me it wasn't going to happen, basically. But I figured enough people would drop out. I'd be fine because they said they had made enough dough for 100 pizzas. Uh-huh. So uh, I figured not everyone's going to order a whole pizza to themselves. Right. There's about 75, 80, maybe 90 people at that point in front of me. Okay. But the oven is not very big. They're probably making two or three pizzas at a time. So I knew it was going to be a long wait. I didn't know how long it would be, but I ended up going to a dive bar called the Sullivan's Gulch Bar and Grill, where there's a former Castagna chef. Greg, Greg Zanotti. Cooking chicken tenders. And free free hot dogs. Dude, it's actually pretty fun. He's there on Mondays, and if you happen to live in Portland like we do, you can go down. But that's, a far, that's far away from Lovely's 50-50. You know, it is and it isn't, because there's a freeway entrance right there on Broadway, and so... We got there and then just kind of, you just go down Broadway up. Well, we don't have to get into the directions, but it was like a eight minute drive back to Lovelies. Oh, did, how, but how did you know when to go? I mean, I was just, the whole thing was curious. So I had my, I had chicken tenders. I, we split a bacon cheeseburger and some wings and then after, and then watched some basketball. And then like an hour and a half later, drove back to Lovelies, waited in the little small front area for like half an hour, 40 minutes. I got sat. And then they told us right off the bat, it's going to be like an hour for your pizzas to arrive. So, but we got the cauliflower, which was amazing. That was a great call. And we got the tomato pie, which is just a little focaccia with tomato on top. Yeah. And we got the, um, uh, like a chicory Caesar, which was beautiful and delicious. And then, you know, just kind of hung out. I, the, the young couple that runs Maloof wines, Ross and B Maloof were there serving and serving their wines as well and so we ordered a really really nice bottle of their wax on wax swath and we're just enjoying that um and so the time passed very quickly in good company with my friend spence okay yeah and uh, then the pizzas came and they were great too obviously we had a lot of leftovers at that point because we'd had quite a bit of food both right. at the dive bar and then the appetizers um so we each had a, like two slices and then wrapped the rest up and took them home to our wife's Okay, great. Awesome. Yeah. I just didn't know. I didn't have, get a chance to talk to you about the five and a half hour. Yeah, wait. 4.30 to 10, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> That's no. the longest I've ever waited for food, honest to God. Oh, God, I can't. I just, we talked, like I said, we, we, like he said, we talked about this a few episodes ago. I'm not waiting for, uh, I, I, I will eventually wait for some type of food, but I just don't like waiting for food. Yeah, and again, it's like, and uh, the another guy I was with, Joe, decided to bail, uh, like at eight o'clock. So sorry, Joe, uh, <laughs> our mutual friend, you know, Hey, you know, you could have stuck it out, but <laughs> you didn't. So yeah, I would have left at four fifty-five when I saw that line. I would have liked it was quite a scene. Basically every major pizza figure in Portland was there from Scotty to, uh, the gal from red sauce to the owner of, uh, a pizza shoals. Uh, you know, just, it was a real fun scene. Oh, okay. Um, 
you suggested we talk a little bit about the NBA. I'm always up for that. That's my favorite sport. So, Golden State's off to seven and one start. Yeah, I, I should. I'm a. I should know. I'm a Trailblazer fan, longtime Portland resident, but I grew up in the East Bay, so I also track. I'm a sports bigamist, as they say. I also follow the Warriors. Big Warriors fan as well. Uh, my hot take is that Steph Curry looks like. He could win the MVP award this year. He's been incredible. Well, I'm not even I'm, sure that's I'm, a hot I'm, take I'm, anymore. I'm willing to make that's not much of a hot take because he's how many has he won? Two, has two. He, but you know the way that works in the NBA is voters get fatigue. Like, you know, I mean, that's like, why you're wrong. Jordan could have won ten. I know Jordan win, didn't win. 10. I'll, I'll, LeBron gentle, could have won three. Gentleman's bet. I, I'll, I'll, I, my pick is the Greek freak. I'll say the Greek freak wins the MVP. So if it's a if it's the field, then it's a push. Yeah. All right. I'll take that. I'll take Steph for a dollar. Yeah. Dollar bet. Okay, on air. I got the Greek Everyone's freak. Everyone's listening. Yep. Uh, Steph has been incredible. And I I mean, there's been a lot of amazing stats coming out of the NBA this year, mostly because... Clay Thompson, 52 points. Fifty. Clay Thompson, 52 points. And how many and minutes? 14 three-pointers, which and how, how many was minutes? the record for I doubt, all time. I doubt he, had, he played very many minutes. I think he played three quarters. But yeah, and... Uh, uh, Steph got 51 a few nights before and but not just points I mean it's like rebounds are up assists are up but and it's mostly because the NBA the overall pace of the game right. has sped up and that's partly due to some rule changes um I think the funnest one and the one I've liked the most is that after offensive rebounds the team only gets 14 seconds to shoot so before if you got an offensive rebound, the shot clock reset to 24 whole seconds. And a lot of times teams would take that whole time right. and set up the next play. Now it's only 14 seconds. I did so not know speeding that. speeding up plays off offensive rebounds. There's a lot of other rules. That one's really smart and fun. Everybody loves that rule. But I, you watch the first few games, the players weren't ready for it. They were like, you know, oh, okay, I got to throw up a shot now. They were forgetting that it was a lot faster. They just weren't used to the rhythm. Uh, uh, football's obviously doing similar rule changes, which to emphasize offense, like you can't basically can't touch the quarterback anymore. So, and other rules like which are good for like concussions, things like that. I totally understand. Baseball needs to do that too because they're not as fan. They don't have rules that are as fan fan friendly as basketball or football. They're rooted in tradition, which I think is hurting their game compared well, to other sports. I was what I actually watched Game Three of the World Series in its entirety, and it went on until I think twelve thirty west coast time which was 3 30 in the morning if you're a boston red sox fan you're up until the wee hours of the morning watching that because that game went 18 innings and there were you know there were relief pitchers who pitched full almost complete games you know seven whole innings so i mean i don't know what what some you can't really do i mean there's that's gonna happen it was exciting yeah i mean but there are things there are things to speed up the pace of play in baseball I mean, you don't need to scratch your jock and like step out of the batter's box every five minutes. And pitchers don't need to like shake off signs for twenty minutes before throwing a pitch. So things like that. So I will just say that you know some of these statistics are inflated by in and the NBA by that pace of play being increased. But one thing that was really impressive was even in the preseason, Steph was shooting fifty percent from three. Which is remarkable. I it's think an average ridiculous. NBA player hits 30, 37, 36, yeah. 37, 38. So I watched that. And, you know, you get a little giddy watching preseason basketball because you think to yourself, the possibilities are endless. And usually those things don't actually translate to the regular season. 
But Steph has continued to shoot at higher than 50%. He's so efficient. He's, he's incredibly he's, efficient. He's, I've never seen anything quite like it. No one shoots from his distance and is as accurate as he is ever in the history of the NBA. No one. Yes. The distance, the volume, and the accuracy is the combination. I think the last guy to shoot above 50% three for an entire season at any, you know, more than just four three-pointers or whatever was Steve Kerr, who's Steph Curry's coach. But he didn't... Nash. Nash probably did, too, or came... I'm not sure he ever shot 50% on threes for a season. We'll see. We can check. We can can check him on that. But Kerr, that season, he probably shot less than 100 three-pointers, whereas Steph is on pace to potentially make high 400s, potentially 500s. And Kerr Kerr would always get open shots because Michael would drive and kick it out to Steve Kerr. They're double teaming stuff. Yeah, triple teaming I mean, sometimes. Because the and, but his but his release is so quick. It's it's like Dan Marino's football release. It's just it's ultra quick. So he can just he needs just a second, a half a second to get off his shot. The next closest guy is probably Damian Lillard for just you know that off the ball, off the dribble, incredible shot. But he's still he's not in Steph's league. So oh no, we can just hope that both those guys stay healthy for the year. And you know they've been incredible. Uh, all right, everyone. Thanks again for listening to our sports bloviating and gambling addiction that we have. It's low stakes gambling. Uh, this has been the Watkins Welcome Pod. I'm Michael Russell. I'm Gary. Good eats out there. <laughs>